It seems like it's been a while since I've been up here. I know I missed last week, and I'm thankful for the many kind comments that I received in welcoming me back. I'm glad to be back. We are glad to be back. We always enjoy uh, time away. We also always enjoy coming home, for we know that it needs to, this is where we feel the most home. It also seems like it's been a really long time, for it's been a few, uh, few months, actually, since we've been in the book of Acts. We're going to return to the book of Acts, and I want to give you the good news, believe it or not, that the end is in sight of the book of Acts. We have uh, one, two more chapters, which really means we have about four or five more messages out of the book of Acts. The last couple of chapters here, uh, especially the, the next chapter here, 27, is going to move pretty fast because it's mostly narrative, which means there's not as much uh, uh, teaching that comes out of it, but it's a lot of narrative as God is bringing the story uh, to a conclusion. Now, I'm going to just warn you, if you've read the book of Acts before, you know this, but just warn you that I've always felt when I get to the book of Acts that there's not really a, a really good conclusion. I'd like to know more about what happened to Paul afterwards. But evidently the Holy Spirit, the Lord did not intend for us to know those things, and he, and he stops where he stops. But let's jump in today. Actually, before we jump in the text, I want to kind of maybe catch us up, because the last couple of chapters have really been about the same thing. Paul, who has been captured, he's been taken in chains, he's been held in custody, and over and over again, with different people, he keeps coming into this place where they're supposedly trying him and seeing if there's any reason to keep him, and over and over again, as you recall, they come to the fact where they say, you know, I don't really think he's guilty of anything. And yet, he kept, he's, he's being kept in custody. In fact, when they, when they, uh, when they uh, t- think about the fact that they're going to maybe send him back into where he was at, where they're going to kill him, and there's still people waiting to kill him, he says, I appeal to Caesar because that's whose court I stand in. And that begins another whole series of events where they again try him. They again try to find something wrong with him. They again declare his innocence, except now they keep saying, This is actually the end of chapter 26. They say, this man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. So now he is in chains, in custody, and even though they're declaring his innocence, this seems totally antithetical, right? Seems totally like it doesn't make sense. Even though they're declaring his innocence, they said, well, you said you want to appeal your case to Caesar. I guess you're going to go to Caesar. And that's where we're going to pick up our text today. Chapter 27 of the book of Acts. I hope you have the Bible with you. I encourage you to have it in front of you so you can read along while I'm reading. Chapter 27, we're going to read the first 26 verses. So it's a bit of a lengthy section. Do your best to pay attention and stay engaged in the text for the most important words you'll hear this morning are going to come right in the next couple of minutes here. And when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramitium, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia, we put out to sea, accompanied by Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day we put in Sidon, we put in at Sidon, and Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. And putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. And when we had sailed across the open sea along the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia. A lot of names, a lot of places we don't know. I'm going to show you a map in a little bit to help sort of some of these things make sense. Verse 6. There the centurion found a ship of Alexandria sailing for Italy and put us on board. We sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with great difficulty off Nidus. And as the wind would not, did not allow us to go farther, we sailed under the lee of Crete off Salmon. 
coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of Lassie. Verse 9. Since much time had passed, and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast, which, by the way, the fast in capital letters is the word for the Day of, uh, day of Atonement, that, the, the great big fast, the great Day of Atonement. Since even the fast, let me get back to my place here, was already over, Paul advised them, saying, Sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with much injury, I'm sorry, with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo and of the ship, but also of our lives. But the centurion paid more attention to the pilot and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest, and spend the winter there. Verse 13. Now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then fearing that they would run aground on the surface, they lowered the gear and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo. By the way, just a little term here, make sure you understand. What does the word jettison mean? What, is, what does jettison mean? To throw it overboard. They began to chuck the cargo over the, over the, over the board in the, in the sea. Verse 19. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship, and he said, Do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar." And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Thanks for your good attention to that. God, we want to ask you just very specifically that you open this text to us, help us understand it, not just in a historical context, but help us understand what we may pull over into today, into our world, and what it means to live for you faithfully. Thank you, Lord Jesus. We give you all the praise and glory for the good things you will teach us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, when it was decided that they would set sail for Italy, and then we had this whole long account, and I'm going to try to step you through what happened in a way that makes sense. Now, there's not, like I said, there's not a lot of necessarily theological teaching that happens from this, but I think sometimes reading through this, our eyes kind of glaze over because there's lots of place names that we have no idea where they're at, and it just doesn't really make a lot of sense, but we lose a bit of the desperation of they found themselves in. So I'm going to put up here to you this morning a map of the Mediterranean Sea. Now, just for a frame of reference, you see my little line over there? They began this journey in the town of Caesarea. That's where he was being held in captivity. So it was decided to send him to Italy, and they hop on a boat. And the boat is actually, uh, the, the town name is not labeled, but you remember it's a boat of Adramitium, which is 
on the left side of, of, the, of the province of Asia there. It's between Ephesus and Troas, if you can look up there. It doesn't really matter. But that gives you an example of where the boat was headed. They were planning on going along the coastline like this, if you follow along, along the coastline and end up back where the ship came from. And the centurion, um, Julius, said, hey, that gets us part of the way there, so we're going to hop on this boat and we're going to go with them. Now, you notice that they began, the first part of the journey was that they stopped at this place called Sidon. So the first part of the journey goes just according to plan. You also notice that Julius is very kind to Paul. He lets him get off the boat. He lets him go on to land. You know Paul has lots of friends in lots of places because been, he's been to lots of places. And he says, hey, why don't you let your friends take care of you? They feed him. They, they, I'm sure they gave him a place to sleep overnight perhaps. They, they were generally able to take care of them. This is an indication of the favor that Paul had with Julius, but it's really an indication of the favor Paul has almost everywhere he goes. By the way, can I just say this about, about, about that statement I just made? We see Paul as very strong and very direct and very abrupt and very outspoken for the gospel, right? Like everywhere he goes, he's sure to tell you exactly who God is and what he wants from you and how you may not be fulfilling that and how the answer lies in Jesus Christ. But I'm amazed at his ability to somehow still have favor with people. People don't hate him. Now, there's some people that hate him, right? Because they chase him out of towns over and over again when he's telling them how evil they are. Or maybe he's taking away their business, their livelihood. We saw lots of those things. And yet, when Paul is able to spend time with people, it's not like Julius, like he got under Julius' skin. And like he was annoying. Or he was constantly telling Julius, hey, I mean, as we may be, if, we're, if we say we're direct with the gospel, we might be constantly telling him, Julius, if you don't change, you're going to go to hell. Clearly, he came under, in the graces of Julius. I'm reminded that Jesus came on this earth full of grace and truth. And I think those two words, they, 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 they form such boundaries for us. They, they form such, and maybe if you use this visualization, they form such like two rails for us to, to be going down on. And they keep us in the right place. Far too many of us are too much on one side or the other. We're so full of grace that we don't ever tell people that they're wrong and they'd better change. Or we're so full of truth that they don't think we care about them at all. Or that there may be any other option. And Jesus was full of grace and truth. And I, I suspect there's a bit of that in Paul. Because you see, as direct as he was, as bold as he was for the gospel, here Julius gave him a chance. Now, if you look at this, they have a nice little black line drawn up there on how they got over to Myra. I submit to you that that's probably not exactly what happened. I, don't, I, don't, I can't give you this on, on biblical authority, although it does say that they sailed under the lee of Cyprus. Now, you see Cyprus is sticking right out there. What does under the lee mean? It's a nautical term, by the way. But what does that mean? Under the lee. It actually is used a couple more times in our text today. They also sailed under the lee of Crete and under the lee of Cauda. Anybody know what that means? What does under the lee mean? It's actually a directional term. It really is quite simple. It means on the bottom of, on the south side of. I would guess, now again, I can't tell you for sure, but I would guess that the journey looked a little more like that. Remember, the winds were against them. We're going to find out from the next little steps here. I'm guessing they had a northwest wind that was coming against them. They're on a sailing ship, right? They're dependent on the wind to move. 
Now, you can do some things like uh, with, with sails, if you're really good at, with them, on, in moving into some kind of headwind or cross, crosswind. But my guess is they had a stiff enough breeze that the sailing was difficult. And instead of just nicely sailing like they wanted to, they came somehow underneath Cyprus so they could sort of get a break from the wind and try to get around. They might have even potentially done something more like this which means they're trying to go that way, but they can't, which means they have to come around and make up some ground. All of this, it doesn't really matter, by the way, but all of it to understand that they were being delayed, that their journey was not going as fast as it should have gone. They eventually come to a place called Myra. At this point, I think they're realizing things are not going the way, and I don't know for sure whether the original ship wasn't going to go any further anymore or whether the, uh, the Julius just realizes we better get on a different route that does something a little differently, but he trades ships here. He finds an Egyptian ship, and we're going to find out later in the chapter that it's loaded with grain, among other things, and it's headed for Italy, and Julius says, let's get these prisoners on board here. I didn't even mention this, by the way, but did you notice that the, the, the pronouns change in chapter 27? We now start hearing the word we again, which means what? If it says we are now on the ship and we were doing this, what does that mean? That means Luke is now with Paul again, because Luke wrote this book of Acts, and before he was talking about what Paul did, what Paul did, what Paul did, in third person, now he's talking in first person. Anyway, they change ships to Myra and get on, uh, get on board again at Myra, and they again with difficulty, come just outside of this place called Nidus. Here's what they're intending to do. If you look at that, they're intending on sailing straight across, maybe touching the bottom tip of, of, the, of Greece and heading over to Italy. That's what they want to do. But the wind has been against them. They've been struggling. They've wasted days and days and days. They're trying to get where they cannot get to, which means what actually ends up happening is they end up coming down again, the wind drives them down, and again they go on the, under the lee, on the south side, the bottom side of this island called Crete. They end up in a place called Fair Havens. Literally, that's what the place is called. It's called a good harbor, a good harbor for ships. Now, we have to get this sense. Things are taking a lot longer than what they planned. They're not going how they should have. It's like, you, you ever think about, you ever have this, this, this plan and you get, yeah, I want to accomplish this and this and this, and it seems that every step of the way, it's foiled. Every place, that, it just falls apart. It doesn't work like it's supposed to. These, I'm guessing they had in mind they were very close to Italy by now, and instead, they're on the bottom side of Crete, and they cannot move on. In fact, it's late enough that before too long, in a couple weeks' time, they're going to enter the fall time, which for them is a season when you don't sail across the Mediterranean at all because it's too dangerous. Which is why Paul looks at them and says, listen, listen, we're finally on land again. We've been struggling along. We've been trying to poke through. It's not going to happen. I perceive that there's going to be injury and loss if we keep on going. And I'm not talking just about the cargo. And I'm not even just talking about the ship. I'm talking about humanity. He's, he's cautioning them. He's saying, why don't we just hunker down and wait? Why do we not stop pushing through something that, shouldn't, that appears like it shouldn't be happening? However, as you read in the text, the centurion who is in charge of them is inclined to listen more to the ship's captain, the, the guy who's steering the ship, and they think, you know what? 
we can get just a little further. Let me go back to the map because if you're looking at Crete there, just to the west of there is a place called Phoenix. Now, the text tells us that the harbor at Fair Havens was not very good for wintering. I'm not sure what that means. I don't know if it didn't mean they couldn't really get out of the water. I don't know what that means. But in any case, the crew felt like this is not a good place for us to stay for the winter. Let's at least try to get just down the coastline to this place called Phoenix. It's a great harbor to winter in, and I think there's a sense that it lets them say, the moment we get favorable winds in the springtime, we're off. We're going to be better positioned. Now here again, we have these moments, don't we? I'm going to tell you we mostly recognize them looking back, not when we're in them. But we have these moments where someone is giving us advice, but there's something else we want to do, and there's, there's a clash. What's going to happen? What should we do? Where do we go? It's pretty easy for us in today's text to look at them and say, well, Paul he kind of is really connected to the Holy Spirit, right? Which is kind of like, like the Holy Spirit of God. So he kind of should know what he's talking about. So we should listen to him, not to everyone else. It's not going to end well. We don't always recognize it so much in our lives. But can I say this? I suspect if we're willing to be honest, there are plenty of times when people give godly counsel into our lives and we, being as stubborn as we are, decide I'd rather do something different. We may look back someday at that and think, I should have listened to them, but I suspect if we would be willing to be really honest with ourselves, we would have that inclination at the moment if we would be willing to listen to it. The problem is, we're usually pretty stuck on doing what we want to do, aren't we? We're usually pretty stuck on getting what we want. And we're usually pretty good at justifying our motives and making them sound pretty spiritual. Well, here we are. They're on a ship. They have fought and fought and fought and fought the wind. But they're hoping just to sneak up the course, up the, cor- up the, up the side of the, up, uh, up the, I can't say, what, the border, the side of, of uh, Crete and find their way to Phoenix. And so it says in verse 13, when the south wind blew gently... Again, I would encourage you to use your imaginations because my sense is that they were battling a northwest wind the whole way around this whole journey. Just for for days on end, northwest wind, just battling against them. And one day, do you know what that feels like, by the way? Think of the first day in spring when you first begin to feel a south wind, right? It's been a cold north wind all winter long, and it's bitter and cold. And then one day, the wind comes out of the south, and you think... There's something different about this. Have you ever noticed, by the way, that the temperature sometimes is not any different outside? And yet, when there's a south wind blowing, there's just something different about that, isn't there? When the south wind blew gently, they thought, aha, here is our chance. Here's the map. They're at Fair Havens. They're going to try to sneak up the shoreline and get to Phoenix. Now, it's not very far, right? Surely this will not get us in trouble. We've got a south wind. It's going to be very easy. We're just going to hug the coastline and move right on up, and we're going to arrive safely because we have this wind blowing that's bringing us to the place that we want to get to. However, you see that as soon as they leave land, what happens? As soon as they leave land, I'm not sure if I'm still connected back there. I think I'm I'm not staying. I'm going to... Hang on, let me just go back to this. Did I reset that slide? I'm sorry, too many fancy things happening here. 
As soon as they leave land, however, let's go one more, there we go. The northeast wind begins to blow. Now this is a different wind, by the way, but did you know that even in the United States, if you read anything about sailing on the east coast, they have storms called northeasterners. Just like these, and they're just as nasty. There's a driving northeast wind. By the way, we would know the same thing, right? Because north wind equals cold and east wind equals rain. There's a northeaster that blows up and begins to, begins to beat the boat. And I have no doubt, they're trying to hug the shoreline. And what they do at the first is they turn their boat into the wind, trying to keep them somewhat on course. That's how they're supposed to do it. That's when you read through here, they're trying to, verse 15 says, when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, they finally gave way, which means they finally flipped it around and said, we can't control this anymore because the wind is about to, to break us apart. We can't control this. They finally turn it around, and then what happens? Now suddenly you have sails up and you're, you're going with the wind. How fast do you think they begin to move now? After days and days and days of barely making progress, I have no doubt they felt like they were flying through the water. And that's exactly what it says. Because it says that they just barely, I don't know if you're confused, by the way, about, about verse 16 and 17. But they, they just go underneath this island of, of Cauda and they just barely get these, the boat. Now, it's not the boat itself that's on land. It's their, it's their safety boat. It's their, uh, uh, their, their, their little skiff. The one that they go to shore on that's hanging on the side of the boat. They get that thing up. Finally, they secure it because the reason they do that is because they're going to do what most ships do at that time when they're in a big storm. They run these big old ropes or chains, depending on what they have, around the whole boat. Don't ask me how they do these things, by the way. I'm sure it's scary, and I'm sure many sailors have lost their lives doing it. Because they're in the middle of the storm already. They run these big ropes or chains around the hull of the ship, more than one of them, and they tie them securely. They're basically trying to tie the whole boat together. That's what undergirding means, by the way. They're trying to tie the whole boat together because it's going to be tossed, and it's going to be in the waves. It's going to be crashed by the surf. It's going to be beat up, and they're trying to keep their ship in one piece. And they are being driven along, and they say, wait a minute, this is not good. We are on the bottom side of Crete there, and the wind is out of the northeast, and we're being driven along, and it says that they were fearing they would run aground on the Sirtis. Does anybody know what the Sirtis is? That's actually a proper uh, noun. It, 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 the word means something, but it's a proper noun. Does anybody know what the Sirtis is? No one knows? I didn't know either, so don't feel bad until I study this week. What's that? It's a sandbar. Now, by the way, if you look, it's actually labeled on my map up here. You see that thing labeled the Great Sirtis right down here? You see how the Mediterranean makes a little dip down there? What happens is the waves, this is actually there. I mean, you, it's still there today. The waves come in, and as they come in, they come into that sort of where that, that protected cove is, and all the sand they've been carrying along, they begin to deposit, and the sandbar builds up and builds up. There's actually a place where it's just barely below the surface of the water. So you're in deep, deep water until all of a sudden there's a big, huge sandbar underneath there. And they're seeing themselves being driven across the water, breakneck speed, and they know if we don't do something, if nothing happens, we are going to run aground and the ship's going to break up and our lives will all be lost. For that reason, it says they lowered the gear. That's an interesting word, by the way. There is some discussion about what that word means. They lowered the gear. What does that mean? I would tell you this morning that the word is skuos, which probably doesn't mean anything to you. But if you 
Think back to chapter 10 of the book of Acts. Remember the story of Peter? He's on the rooftop. He's hungry. He's waiting for uh, lunch to be served. And he has a vision, right? And God lowers these animals down. They're unclean. And, and Peter says, I'm never going to eat them. And God says, what I've made clean, you shouldn't call unclean. And God is in the process of showing Peter that he's going to bring the Gentiles into the kingdom as well. Remember that story? The animals were lowered down. I don't know if you remember, I talked about this actually when we went through chapter 10, but that's been a little while ago, so I'll forgive you if you don't remember this. But you remember that the, the animals got lowered in something, and, and in the English text it says it looked like a great sheet. It's the very same word, skewos. So when we talked about that, I said it actually, it refers to a, sort of like a sail, like this big billowing sail. That's what the animals were lowered down on. That's the same word that's used here. I believe what is being said to us is that they realized they were being driven along, and they lowered all their sails. They bound up the ship, and they basically said, we're going to be a little floating bobber on the great big Mediterranean Sea at the mercy of the storm. Where it takes us, we can't help it anymore. We're not going to try to run. We're not going to try to, to steer. We're not going to try to do anything along those lines. We're going to take everything down. We're going to bind up the ship. We're going to hang on like crazy, and we're going to start throwing stuff overboard. This is the desperate situation they find themselves in. And it's not just like... A little bit, right? Look at what verse 20 says. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days. And the storm didn't go away. Imagine yourself on a boat in the middle of an ocean. And you're in the middle of a storm. And you haven't seen the sunshine or any stars for many days. This is why the last part of the line is, is there. Because at that point, all hope of being saved was abandoned. They all, I don't know what they all did, but they all sat down and said, we're goners. It's the end. Now, I tell my children, well, let me back up to this for a little bit. I'm going I'm to introduce the next section first before I, looking at the first part of verse 21. It says since, in the ESV, it says, since they had been without food for a long time. I would suggest to you that there's an alternate interpretation of how that should come out. I think the King James grasped that a little better than, than the ESV does in this case. Now, it is true that they haven't been eating. We're going to find out later in the text that none of them have been really eating a whole lot. But literally what it says there, it, it says that, but for a long time being under fasting. That's the word, it's the word for Fasting. Then Paul speaks. I would submit to you that I think we actually should see a picture of Paul being the one that's fasting. Not just not eating food like the others weren't, but he was fasting and praying to God and asking what's going to happen. Because it's out of that, out of that time of fasting that we're going to get the event that happens next. There may have been others who were fasting too, but I think we should read it that way. That because Paul had been fasting for those many days, he stood up among them and he says, men, you should have listened to me. Now, I tell my children that it's not kind that if you find yourself be proven right afterwards that you shouldn't go back and rub it in people's faces. Paul, however, went back to them as he stood on that ship and they were being tossed about and they hadn't seen the sun or stars and he says, listen, you guys should have listened to me. We should have never left. Now, he does something very specific, by the way. He ties it back to exactly what he said at the beginning. Notice there's words that are there. He said, you should not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury 
and loss. It's the exact same words he said when they were still at Fair Havens. He said, sirs, I perceive that this is going to be great danger. If we proceed, there will be injury and much loss. And now he's saying, you're seeing it. You've chucked aside all the things that you've, you're starting to chuck cargo overboard. You're starting to chuck everything overboard. You're starting to get rid of your sails even. You're starting to get rid of your, your, your mast spars. You're trying, starting to get rid of everything. I told you. Now, I believe he does it in this case, by the way, because he's establishing that he has an authority to speak about this that they may not believe. Because at the first time he said that, I don't think they probably thought he had any authority in the situation, right? I mean, he's a prisoner. He's not a sailor. What does he know about these kind of things? He's establishing to them that I know of what I speak of. And he goes on to say, I want to urge you now to take heart. As desperate as you might think our situation is, as, as hopeless as you think it is going to be, as much as you think we have no option, but we're all going to be dashed to pieces or lost at sea and no one will ever hear from us again. He says, I urge you to take heart. There's not going to be any loss of life. Now, the ship is a different story, but there's not going to be any loss of life. And they probably looked at him and said, how can you tell us that? The sun still isn't shining. There's still a storm going on. How can you tell us that? We're in the middle of, the, we don't even know where we're at. I'm guessing by that point, some, we don't have the map. Pretty much. At that point, they're somewhere off in the middle. There. They have no idea where they're at. And he says, I'll tell you why I know that. Because last night, an angel came to visit me. It's an angel of the God that I belong to and that I worship. And this is what he said to me. He said, do not be afraid, Paul, for you must stand before Caesar. Now, that sounds a lot like, again, if you take your memory back just a couple of months, several months, that sounds a lot like Acts chapter 23, verse 11, when Paul is in the middle of this trial and this, there's all this upheaval going on and Jesus comes and speaks to him, right? And he says, be of good courage, Paul. Just as you've testified about me here, you're also going to testify about me in Rome. You see, we can never, ever, ever walk away from or escape from the fact that God has his purposes and he will bring them about. We can never, ever get away from the subject of God's sovereignty as we're talking about the book of Acts. Really about the whole Bible, but as we're talking about the book of Acts. The angel says, in the middle of the storm, in the middle of the Mediterranean, in the middle of everyone knowing that you're just going to be lost for good, I'm going to come to you and say, don't be afraid, for you are going to stand in front of Caesar. I would suggest to you that Caesar probably felt about a million miles away from Paul at that point. And yet, we're going to find out in a little bit, he says, I believe God when he says that. There's a last second part there, by the way, because remember the first time when Paul was warning them? And I don't think he's being deceptive at all. I don't think he's changing his mind. I think when he warned him, he said, listen, if we do this journey, we're going to lose cargo. We're going to lose ship. We may even lose lives. We're going to lose lives over this. But according, what, well, let me just give a glimpse into what you think Paul was praying for as he was fasting. Because he says, after the angel told me, don't be afraid, you're going to arrive in Rome. You're going to stand before Caesar. He says, and behold, God has granted, that's the word kerizamai, God has graced, God has graced you all those who sail with you. I have no doubt, I would like to suggest you have no doubt that Paul, when he was praying and fasting, not only what was going to happen to him, he was begging God to spare the lives of all those people on that ship. And his prayers were heard. Because God said, you're going to lose the ship. In the end, they lost almost everything in the ship and they lost the ship itself. But every person will be spared. There will be no loss of life. And it's phrased this way because Paul wants them to know it is an act of God's grace. 
and God has graced you, me, he says. I mean, what he's telling them, he's saying, God has graced to me all those who are sailing with me. It is in God's grace. And again, he encouraged them, so take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. And I love this line by Paul. I love this. This could be an application point for us, by the way. Take heart, for I am convinced, I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. Can I suggest to you, by the way, if you know of someone who needs encouragement, would you follow these methods? Would you follow these patterns? Would you share the things that God has said? How do you know what God has said? I suggest you should read them in here. Would you share the promises that God has given in here? And would you go to people and say, look, this is what God said. That's what Paul did. He said, he said before him, he said, look, this is what God said to me. This is what God has said in his word. This is what he has promised to us. And take heart, be encouraged, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as he said. Things like, now we know in part, but then we shall know in full. Things like there's coming a day when God says, I will be your God and I'll be in your presence in your midst and there will be no more tears. Things like, I have gone to prepare a place for you and if I've gone to prepare a place for you, then you know that I'll come and take you to be with me so you can be where I am. Things like, in this world you're going to have trouble, but take heart, I've overcome the world. All kinds of promises that God gives us in his word Let's use those in this manner to encourage people and say, take heart, be encouraged. I believe God. When he said it's going to happen that way, it's how it's going to happen. That's where my faith is. That's where my trust is. I would suggest to you and I, by the way, that is the only place we can find sure hope. Speaking of application, let me make one more point of application this morning before I dismiss you. There's a verse I did not read in verse 23 as Paul is describing it. An angel came to him. He says, I was visited this very night by an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I worship. And I love that phrase. I think it's a phrase that is one of those things that we can take right out of the pages of Scripture and apply them to our lives. The God to whom I belong and whom I worship. Now, to make this point applicable, by the way, it means moving beyond just the theoretical and actually making it part of your life. I can tell you, by the way, that you do belong to God. Whether you know it or not, whether you acknowledge it or not, you do. By rights of creation and by rights of redemption, you belong to God. However, the strength of this phrase is not in just recognizing up here that I belong to God because he created me and I belong to God because he redeemed me. The strength of this phrase is the voluntary placing of myself under God and saying, I belong to him. I'm his. I'm his to do with what he wants. That's exactly what Jesus did, by the way. We see it most clearly in the Garden of Gethsemane, but we see it his whole life through. I don't say anything except the Father says it to me. I don't do anything except the Father tells me to do it. For my food is to do the will of my Father. That's Jesus. And when he stood in Gethsemane, or he knelt in Gethsemane, and he was in anguish, and he said, can there be any other way to do this? And in the end he said, not what I want, but what you want, God. He said, I belong to you. 
And the second phrase comes right along with it. For when we truly belong to God, He is the God we worship. Latruo. It also can be interpreted serve. Depending on what translation you're reading, it probably says that, in fact. It's the same word that's used when Paul starts his, second, his 12th chapter of Romans. He said, I urge you, brothers, by the grace of God, by the mercy of God given to you, that you offer yourselves as a living sacrifice to God. For this is your fitting act of worship or service. It's the same word. Offer yourself to God, to whom I belong, and serve him. Worship him. Give yourself for his purposes. See yourself as a tool in his hand that he may use as he sees fit. This is a phrase that packs a lot of punch. I think, by the way, that you and I not only could do this, but would be well served to do this, to spend more than just the five minutes we're talking about it here, to spend time this next week just contemplating, go rolling over in our heads, wrestling with this phrase, do I belong to God and do I really serve him or worship him? This is the phrase that allows Paul to stand fearlessly on the ship, on the, on the deck of a ship that is, that is destined, everyone else thinks, destined to be broken and destroyed and say, take heart. God told me we're going to arrive in Rome safely and therefore I know it's going to be true because he knows where he belongs, and who he serves. May we have, if I can use this word as a pun, maybe we have the same anchor in our lives that Paul had. God, thank you so much for your word this morning. We are indebted to you for the way that you have provided it to us, kept it, maintained it for us, and then you help us to understand it. But God, I want to just be very upfront about the reality that you don't want us just to understand your word and be able to understand it in our heads. But when you use the word understand, what your spirit really does in understanding is, is, is has with it the idea of obedience, not just mental understanding. You want us to apply these words. We read the story, we, we talked about the story today of when someone's life went totally off track for actually more than one person. Things just didn't go according to plan and yet we see you coming through and speaking your truth and applying your promise and saying, I told you, Paul, you're going to stand before Caesar, so you are going to stand before Caesar. May we be building our lives along the same, on that same rock, that same foundation, that same, uh, that same unmovable promise that you've given. Maybe, first of all, I didn't even mention this when, we were, when I was talking in the sermon, but maybe, first of all, the bedrock that is the promise you've said that you have paid for everything that I have ever done against you by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that when I confess that, when I put my faith in what you've done in Jesus, that I am forgiven and I have eternal life with you. That is, first and foremost, the anchor that I want to hang on to. Thank you. But there's so much more, God, that you've given we get so easily distracted by the things we see in our lives that seem to be stacked against us. We get so discouraged. Help us, God, to know where we belong. And if we cannot honestly this morning say, I belong to God and I worship him, I serve him. If we cannot honestly say that, if we don't know for sure that we belong to you, we have no foundation to stand on. So the first thing, God, is that we find ourselves hidden in you, that we would be able to say, as Paul said, I can stand here and say, I, I know what God has said in his word, and it's the God that I belong to and the God that I worship. And so I know that what he has said is going to come true.
Thank you for encouraging us and building our faith, even as we sometimes are realizing the shortcomings we have. God, we give you praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning?